What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. As baseball season is starting, there's many conversations on my mind and in the air. Revisiting the conversations about the Negro Leagues now being considered a major, thinking about women getting into ownership, thinking about a renewed energy towards HBCUs, there is a lot of things I wanted to parse through, and it brought to mind again and again Effa Manley. Effa Manley, Newark Eagles owner in the Negro Leagues, a woman who navigated ownership in, in a black male sporting world, who was a absolute warrior for black institutions and black institution building. And she just kept coming to mind with a lot of these contemporary conversations. Luckily for me, my friend Andrea Williams just dropped a new book, again, about Effa's life, baseball's leading lady, the rise and fall of the Negro Leagues. And so I thought it was only fitting to call her up to talk about the book and what Effa's story can tell us about some of the conversations we're grappling with today. So welcome to Burn It All Down. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, you know, y'all can't see, but I see you have um, Negro Leagues uh, Perry on. And it's so funny because the only thing that I own is actually an Eagles jersey just okay. to support Effa. I don't actually like much things about New Jersey, but I, that is my one kind of Negro Leagues uh, rep besides my bobbleheads of of Tony and okay. them. Okay. So Effa has long been a figure close to my heart. I'm talking about Effa Manley. For those who don't know about Effa Manley, um, can you tell us a little bit about who Effa was and what led you to this project? Because she is fascinating and people get fascinated from her for multiple reasons. I really want to know what brought you to her story. What brought you to her project? Yeah, I was going to say, I have not perfected the F a manly elevator pitch by any means whatsoever. So people are like, tell me a little bit. And I'm like, all right, you got 30 minutes, 45. Um, but yeah, for me, it was really her her work as the business manager and co-owner of the Newark Eagles. So I went to undergrad, um, studied sport management, thought that I was going to come out and work for a baseball team, Major League Baseball team, and eventually work my way up um, and become a general manager. And um, I graduated from college in 2004 and was just, you know, kind of in that period of like, all right, whose path am I following? Like, who has done this thing, you know, before me? Um and I ended up, you know, taking a job at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum right out of undergrad. I'm originally from Kansas City, so I went back home after graduating from Georgia Southern. And first day, Bob Kendrick, uh, who's the president now and was the marketing director then, so my direct boss, gave me a tour of the museum. And we passed this picture of Effa and her husband, Abe, kind of just like on the wall, just out of nowhere. I'm like, who are these people? Just chilling. Yeah, who are these people? 
Like there are no, um, and you mentioned like Tony uh, and Mamie, but like the museum is set up chronologically. And when we get to Effa and Abe, which is like 30s and 40s, there are no women up to that point, right? And so, and me, I grew up loving baseball. Like, you know, I guess I'm kind of like, I hate to say this a little bit, but you you get used to not seeing a lot of women, right? So when you do, you know how significant it is. So I'm like, yo, who is this woman? Who are these people? Um, and yeah, so he told me a little bit about her and I started doing my own research and just, you know, she was all of the things. She, You know, at this time, like, crazy enough like Kim Ang had already been in the league for so long but was still just an assistant with with the Yankees but here was a woman who had reached the pinnacle who was running this team like all on her own like her husband you know he was the guy that went out on scouting trips and went out you know on the bus you know for barnstorming tours F was the one in the office holding it down she was the one negotiating contracts and ordering equipment and uniforms and buying the bus and making sure it had enough gas all that stuff and it was just so amazing to me. Um, and then, you know, we fast forward, what, 15 years when I'm like, all right, maybe I should write a book. Wild, wild <laughs> idea. <laughs> craziness, craziness. So, yeah. That's really dope. Now, I, I love that question because I always like to know how people came to EFA. For me, I was a baby grad student up in Cooperstown, which um, was like my first real kind of research trip out alone. And it was the whitest place I've ever done research. I, I don't think I saw a black person for a week legitimately. Um, and yeah. I just didn't know what to do with myself during lunch hours when, when the archives were closed. And so for me, when I first saw her, I was literally in the Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. just being chaotic, wandering around. And then I like did one of those double tapes, like, whose black is that? Like, I'm yeah. confused, like, where she come Same. from? I need yeah. all the stories. <laughs> Um, you know, like, please, somebody tell me what's going on. And they're like, oh, she's the first woman. And then probing a little bit more and being like, oh, she's mixed. Oh, she's like black. Like, oh, wait, there's layers here. Layers. Like, I am baffled that I've never heard about that. And so that I always remember that moment where I had to like, literally do a double take. And so I know one of the things that a lot of people get very interested in about Effa is this question of her race. Now, I'll be honest, lay my cards on the table. I'm very bored by this particular interest in Effa. And only that, um, sometimes I think it eclipses some of the other tensions I'm more interested in, which I'll ask you about in a, a minute. But I think for people who especially are new to Effa's story, her racial ambiguity is something that holds a lot of interest. And so, you know, our friend of the show, Shakia Taylor, obviously um, has grappled with this. Um, I will definitely tell you, you know, my read on it, but I wanted to know how you handled the question of Effa's race and ethnicity and how she presented and this question of who was this mysterious woman? Yeah, so I, I addressed that in the book. And interestingly, so I had multiple publishers that my book went to auction and, you know, got to talk to different editors before we decided like who we were going to go with in terms of publishing the book. Shout out to my editor, Megan, who left Roaring Brook and is now at Bloomsbury, but she's the dopest. But yeah, that like that question came up in the editor calls. Like, yeah, so... In some preliminary research that I did, just Googling, like, this is the thing and what is your plan for, you know, for the book? How are you going to address this particularly for young readers? And so I'm like, yeah, we'll just tell the truth. It's fine. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like that, that will absolutely suffice. Right. And so the interesting thing to me is that 
if we look, if we look at, you know, the, the history, if we look at what documents we have and what information we have, right? We have, we have census records, right? And marriage records for Effa that say she's black. Okay. So now already though, we got people like, yeah, but I don't know, right? Like she might've just said she was black when she got married because, you know, it's technically illegal, blah, blah, blah. Well, I'm like, okay, but what about her mom though? That like part. we have we have information that says her mom was black, right? And so the question that I have said repeatedly, all the interviews that I've done thus far, is that we gotta grapple with why we as a society are so persistent of trying to make sure that she's that white. part. Exactly. That part. Like we have decided this woman is white until proven black. And even when we have the proof, we're still talking about it. Listen, this is exactly where I am because I remember the first time I came into this conversation and I was really baffled by what felt like the multiple hoops people mainly white male sports writers were jumping through to distance her from blackness while effa was running straight into it right and we definitely have moments in her life where like many people who can pass they chose to we have moments where a calculation is made about how you need to slip in and slip out of racial categories to be upwardly mobile to get employment opportunities Um, but you know, I remember, you know, listening to interviews with players who were like, look at her. She's a Negro lady. Like, you know what I mean? Yes. Monty Irvin is like, look, man, even if you wasn't sure, like by the time this chick, yeah, come on now. Exactly. She looked like your grandma. (laughs) Like what you talking about? Monty was like her lips though. Her lips though. (laughs) That, that oral history that we're talking about is really a riot. Right. But you know, that's exactly what it was and when I say I'm bored by this conversation it's because so often I feel like it exists so out of the history of black America of passing and this is what you do so well in the book when you grapple with this right is like this is not actually a atypical story of people who have to slip in various ways um that conversation of this idea that we are litigating her racial identity and invested in it is really illuminating. Invested, invested, Invested. You know, and the thing that the primary source document that always got me about this, have you ever pulled her death certificate? I have not pulled it, no. I'm gonna send it to you. If you look at her death certificate, it's so interesting. You look at the race on her death certificate Mm -hmm. and it says white. But if you look very closely at the W, you'll see there was a B there at first. I think about that all the time. Like even at a death certificate, on the text, on the primary source that we can Mm -hmm. feel, there's Mm -hmm. this investment in literally superimposing whiteness over this. So anyways... Um, I was really, really impressed by the way you treated it in in the book and, and handled that part of her story. Yeah, I appreciate that. And yeah, I think, you know, to kind of just piggyback off of what you're saying, I think I think ultimately this it's it's it says something about us as a people for sure that we're litigating this. I think it also speaks to the failures in, you know, whether it's the education system, whether it's, you know, us passing down, you know, I have kids, you have kids. What how how much are we teaching our children about who came before us and what like life was like for them, right? Like if we have a real understanding of American life in the 1920s when Effa is coming of age, particularly 
for black people who are this fair skin we don't really ask ourselves these questions we understand how the world worked then right you know when we when we fast forward and there's this moment that everybody clings to in this in this interview this oral history she does and she's like yeah i'm white i'm like she also said she was born in 1900 and ain't nobody questioning that we know that chick was born in 1897 like be easy she was lying okay exactly but Again, I'm I listen to that and I'm like, all right, and she was also talking to this white guy, right? Exactly. Like as a journalist, I know that it's not even so much about the questions you're asking, but who's asking them and what kind of presentation does the interviewee feel that they need to come to the table with? I can hear all kind of stuff in that in that conversation that is Effa again still showing up and being not the Effa that is, you know, at home with Abe, this very regular brown dude from Virginia, or even Effa in the boardroom with these other black owners of Negro Leagues teams. This sounds like the Effa who has the job as the hat maker that typically goes to white women. This sounds like the Effa who is, when she's traveling alone, may stay in a white hotel or may eat at a restaurant. That's the Effa at that end of life interview that everybody always references. And so, yeah, it is not just this tendency to want to make her white. It is also, again, why do we not understand How are we missing? And this goes to the point of why I want to write a book for kids. We have such a surface level, on the whole, surface level understanding of our history and the social dynamics that have ebbed and flowed throughout, you know, Black people, our time here in this country. Absolutely. And I think that the other part of that is like, can we sit and grapple with the questions that then arise if we can get past this Right. 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 And so for me... Thinking about Black women navigating the world of sports is obviously my wheelhouse. That's what I do. And what I found really interesting were these relationships that she had with her co-owners, with um, sports writers, especially. I never forget. I talk about this every time I can talk about it, that reading an article where Sam Lacey and other black sports writers are absolutely going after her for something. They're talking about her crying in a boardroom or doing something with her feminine wiles, which is like their favorite phrase to say. And then literally the next document I pulled in the archive was a letter from Lacey asking her for money. Girl. Right. That was like, well, can we, can I just hold this please? Like you're such a good friend. And so I was instantly captivated by this interior and exterior dance that was clearly done, that was completely influenced by gender politics, by class politics, by colorism, like all of that's bound up here. But what does it look like to understand her and then ask questions of black sports writers who in many other histories look very different than if you look at the history of baseball through Effa's eyes or Tony or Mamie's or Connie's, they look very different. Because you start to ask different questions about them. Yeah. And so one, I would love to get your thought on that, her dynamic navigating black sports writers and co-owners and and these kind of black sporting spaces. And two, you just dropped a really dope piece in the New York Times this past week. Everybody who hasn't checked it out, please do. It's called We Have No Right to Destroy Them. Um, It dropped on uh, Jackie Robinson Day, which is fitting, or the day before. But one of the things it's grappling with was a very, very public feud that Effa had with Robertson about the um, impacts on the Negro Leagues after he integrated uh, the major leagues and the years that followed. 
And Ethel is really the only voice out there talking about the cost of integration. Um, and these questions and, and grappling with the way we celebrate Jack and barriers being broken without holding and sitting with this cost mm-hmm. that is going to be um, bankrupting FNA, other black ownership, an entire kind of black institution and infrastructure set up obviously by segregation, but also a place where communities came together and congregations and flourished and weighing those costs along with the celebratory narratives of Jack is something that is required. It's required. If we center Effa in this story. Yeah. Yeah. It's required. If we center Effa, it's required. If we want to really go forward and start to rectify, you know, these, these mistakes of the past, if we really want to put ourselves in a better situation, I feel like a broken record. Every interview I'm like, yo, if we don't understand the past fully, we can't build a better future. That's not me just coming up and being like, yo, the white people missed it. Like Branch Ricky was a whole clown. Also got to be like, yo, so did the black people. Right. right. Like this is how we move forward. This is how we learn, you know, going back again. I have four kids. I don't want my kids to like have to start over. Right. I want them to learn from my mis- mistakes and pick up where I left off. And we as a people, because and I, and I and I understand this inclination because of the issues, the difficulties that we've had in this country, we we tend to, when it comes to ourselves, particularly, you know, our elders and the people in the past, we we tend to automatically put ourselves in this position that we always did the right thing. We were just doing the best with what we had and the man was coming to get us. And so everything we, we managed to do was a win. That ain't really true, right? That's not really true. Like I say, I say all the time, like Jackie, Jackie was really perfect to integrate because he, this is a guy who 100% cares for his people, right? Like, this is a guy who is court-martialed because he's like, I'm not sitting at the back of the bus. He is about his people. But he is young enough and inexperienced enough in the baseball world to not really care so much about the institution that he was about to tear down via his crossover. You cannot get Satchel Page in that room and be like, yo, so this is what we going to do. Satchel Paige like, first of all, I'm barnstorming on a plane. That's number one. (laughs) (laughs) That part. I don't need your coins. But also he'd come up, right? Like this, the second iteration of the Negro National League is really Satch's league. It's Josh Gibson's league. Like they are as married to its success as the league is married to the success of Satch and Josh. That's not Jackie. Jackie is really removed from this as an institution that matters right like white people we know if nothing else are calculating like they got the right dude and if we don't sit up and talk about what that means if we don't sit up and talk about you know the the dynamics of of Jackie being in that room alone with Branch Ricky and just just the transformation that we see you know in his own life from that first biography he writes with Wendell Smith to the second one he writes on his own right like absolutely all of these things matter and I think um to go back to your question in this <laughs> roundabout way um you know about Effa and the sports writers this is not like fast forward 
covered, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. And we're like, oh my gosh, like the black press, this amazing institution and look at Sam Lacey and Wendell Smith. And they were our heroes. They were the pioneers. And again, they get automatically cast in this inherently positive light. She's in real time with these dudes and they are people like all of us flawed. And she's like, absolutely, this is a mistake. <laughs> this is a mistake. Like, you can't go drag me in the press like this. You're missing it right here. You can't see the things that I can see. I say all the time, like, women on the whole, like, we are forward thinking in a ways that men aren't always. That is not, you know, to say that, like, we're better than men or anything like that. But I, I do think Effa just, you know, by virtue of being a woman, saw things and understood things about the future of black baseball in a way that men weren't thinking about. This is her, this is her owners, the co-owners that she's with who are who are less inclined to speak up. But it's also the the black press who is doubling down on Jackie and the other guys who who get signed and are completely abandoning, you know, black baseball as if it has some, you know, is somehow, you know, unnecessary at this point. It's now now black baseball is obsolete because here we are, we have arrived and Eva's like how can you not see? Exactly. That it is not going to be this automatic thing that we are we are for sure going to lose something in the process. It's just, you know, it's just like any other situation, right? Like these are real people in real time having tensions and conflict, learning from each other, you know, trying to influence each other, trying to push their personal agenda. And we lose all of that when we fast forward and we take this wide brush and say, Jackie was a hero and so were Sam and Wendell because they were pushing for him for them and look everything is great because integration is the best thing always. Absolutely. I think it's so important that you you put in that tagline, the rise and fall of the Negro Leagues. And through Effa, use this story to tell a more complicated history. And I think that's, to me, right. what it comes down to when we're talking about a history that is complicated and messy. Right? That's right. And so we're not freezing somebody like Jack in 47 and mm-hmm. then building monuments and things on this. And I think about this a lot about foundation. There's a very big difference between building on a faulty, broken foundation and building on a messy, complicated. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash BlueWire to start hiring today. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
you're building on a faulty foundation. You're just going to keep stacking until it's just going to eventually give way. You're never really actually addressing the root cause. Building on a complicated, messy one, the roots are solid, but you're figuring out where you actually need to build upon and what you need to leave be. And I think that that's why this complication that you're doing um, is part of these histories of these retellings that are so important. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? This is Shireen, and I have struggled with anxiety and depression in the past. I've often turned to counseling and therapy to help me through. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. And there's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. But this service is available for clients worldwide. Flamethrowers, wherever you are, BetterHelp can help you. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy, which may not even be possible in a pandemic anyway. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit BetterHelp.com burn, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they have started recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer for Burn It All Down listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash burn. That's betterhelp.com slash B-U-R-N. And especially as we think about, and we can transition into present day, women in ownership position navigating these kind of male spaces we've seen it seems like almost every week now in the last few months another announcement from sarah spain to uh athletes joining angel city fc right serena williams's daughter Mm -hmm. renee montgomery obviously with the kind of dopest trajectory of them all right right but i think we're definitely in this moment where even these things become obviously very celebrated because it's breaking certain glass ceilings but i think like what happens if we keep being messy and complicated right what happens when we think about like what does it mean to be a owner in a league that we're still saying is unequitable what Mm -hmm. does it mean for women to be in these spaces you you just made an argument that you think effa was able to see things. Do you think some of the influx of women we have into ownership spaces and sports that we're having now are going to bring a new type of vision? Or do you see ways in which it's a very, like, barrier-breaking moment, but one that also needs to be kind of complicated and made messy? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I'm I'm a proponent of always complicating things and 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 telling the real stories and talking the real truths. Um, but I I do think I do I celebrate these these owners. I think it's important. I think, you know, one of the things I think that if we if we really read history accurately, you know, if we if we sit with the things that I talk about in this book is this idea that representation is not enough, right? And we're we're seeing people come to that now, which I'm like, okay, yes, this is this is again where we shouldn't be starting over. We should be picking up where our elders left off. And this idea that representation is not enough was established. If we're talking about base, this is established in the 40s and 50s, right? Like it takes till 59 for every team to get one player. There is no control here. Like we we are offering up our best and brightest to make this holy white institution better and they have no reason whatsoever to consider offering us a piece of the equity pie so when I see women doing that I think that's always a win. I think it's always important to have equity. Is it going to be messy? Yeah, because we're still talking about these things that for the most part haven't really been done, haven't been done certainly in mass, like what we're seeing right now. Um, But yeah, it's important. It's important to talk about these things. It's important to talk about the issues that they face, you know, even when they decide to buy a team, right? Like, what does that look like if we're, if we're thinking forward and we're thinking about the next group of women that's going to come in or the next people of color that are going to come in. How, how does it like, I would have loved for, you know, when all that was going on, like with Diddy, when he was like saying that he wanted to buy the Panthers or whatever, like, I'm like, brother, they will never let you like number <laughs> one, but we need to have that conversation. We need to have that conversation. We need to just not talk about the fact that, oh, we don't own anything. Let's talk about why we don't own anything. And let's talk about how hard it is to move into the next direction. That might mean we need to create our own thing. That might mean that we need to think outside of this current box that is that is prohibiting our inclusion. Like all of these things are necessary to talk about. Absolutely. And that segues perfectly into the other contemporary conversation that I see and I would love to get your opinion on, which is this moment, right, where you have on one hand this kind of certain celebration of the Negro Leagues. Obviously, you have the MLB doing whatever the hell they thought they were doing um, a few months ago um, with officially recognizing them now. Uh, Of course, uh, Flamethrowers, me and Howard Bryant did a hot take on who really benefits from the MLB's decision to recognize formally the Negro Leagues as a major league. Uh, So if you want to revisit that conversation, that's back in December of 2020. Um, But you have this moment, right, where the Negro Leagues are kind of experiencing a moment. HBCUs are experiencing both a rhetorical moment, but also, um, you know, Eddie George right there in Nashville, mm-hmm. just going to TSU, you have, um, you know, Jackson State, you have some of these programs getting yep. more attention. Yep. And so I would really love to know what you're thinking about when we're talking about what is required to sustain spaces that were created by Jim Crow, right? Were created out of necessity and then broken apart, right? By a very kind of narrow vision of integration. And I say a narrow vision of integration because the process that we had in this country was one of desegregation in which white spaces were kind of barely opened up for folks, but mm-hmm. white kids weren't coming to black schools, right? White kids, white players weren't going to the Negro leagues. White right. people weren't coming to HBCs, even though they've always been cosmopolitan and diverse. It wasn't 
conceived of as a two-way street. That's right. And so what is the future of HBCUs, of historically black spaces? What is actually required to to sustain them, to pour resources in them, Mm -hmm. et cetera? And then what is a role of a black institution in the year 2021? So this is this is the thing my husband and I talk about this all the time because we we have four athletes and I'm like, yo, so if like if it came down and they're young, my oldest is only 13. But what happens to to HBCUs is literally what happens to Negro Leagues baseball. Right now we have an option and black people. This, this is what happened to black communities across the country like here we are like we're coming up on the 100 year anniversary of greenwood and i tell people all the time like it wasn't the fire or the massacre that killed that community they had to build back they built back in a year or two because they had no other option they were sleeping in tents and they still couldn't go over to the white people because still the 1920s what ultimately kills that community is first this highway being driven through it via the federal highway act of 1956 and now the people say all right do we build back or not we have options and when black people historically when we have had options we have chosen the other thing because number one i think it's part of psychological conditioning we have been always you know since we were in shackles taught that the white is better that's just what it is and then when we start talking about resources and in that allocation of resources where it is right if you're if you're a football player or a basketball player like I mean, I see the videos with LSU's weight room. Like, I ain't gonna lie. Like, <laughs> hey, I mean, they. Ha- I mean, Alabama has a whole ass. Spot, Listen, you know what I mean. And I mean, honestly, to me, it's the resources. It's for me. the resources. And I think that that part of the conversation is so essential. It's right? so because essential. I saw a tweet the other day where somebody was like, "Do y'all really think like you would really want to be in like?" predominantly black spaces and it's like first of all a lot of people exist already or have in various parts of their life in those spaces but it's always been about resources right and when people are making claims about where they want to sit on the bus right or claims about educational resources it's not because they want to desperately sit on the front of the bus right? right it's not because they desperately need to go to the school that betty sue goes to It's a pursuit of resources. Mm -hmm. And so what happens if we tell this history with that framework, that integration was not the goal, equity. That's right. (laughs) Was was the goal. So, you know, I definitely appreciate appreciate your weighing in. Yeah, it's just it's and I, I don't I don't know the answer to this, but it is going to take if you're if you're a top athlete coming out of high school, this is not something that we can level in, in a year or two just by saying, OK, children, all of you go here instead of there. I think honestly, you know, Eddie George being here at TSU, I think Dion, you know, at Jackson State, I think those things are helpful because now we get attention not necessarily through the player, but through the coaching. And maybe that brings, you know, more TV dollars. And maybe, you know, there there is interest that is generating there. I think it's going to be a much longer route if we're expecting. And I'm talking primarily about ba- basketball and football because those are the revenue generating sports. But if we're talking about, you know, trying to get however many top recruits, you know, in a year to just all of a sudden shift and go to an HBCU, it is a resources issue. So we got to figure out a way, whether that's going to some of these celebrities some of these athletes and asking them or inquiring of why they are not pumping these resources into into these HBCUs there has to be there has to be leveled playing field in terms of resources resources before we can ever expect these athletes I just I mean again I, I know my kids and they're like no I saw the LSU weight room 
I'm just saying. Like we are we are blackity black, black, black over here. And I'm like, listen, like, don't you wanna listen, mom, but did you see the weight room though? Like (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Right. So um we've been having a lot of really complicated, fun, messy conversations, exactly the conversations I love to have. And I want to kind of circle back to something you raised earlier, which is your intentional decision to tell this story as a young adult book. And that's really powerful choice, right? And I want to know um, what led you to that decision and what you think can be gained by telling these stories right to the youth. Yeah. Well, first, thank you. It doesn't always feel powerful. Like I always joke that like this is the least sexy genre of book publishing, like kids, nonfiction, like it's not where it's at. But it's important to me because again, to repeat my own self, I think we have to fully understand the past in order for us to build a better future. And when we look at what is going on in our society right now, we're looking at a bunch of adults. If 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 I am going to be, you know, if I'm going to take a positive look at the situation, right? If I'm going to treat this like a, a glass half full thing and not you know, assume that there is malicious intent or always overt racism, even though obviously sometimes there is, but a lot of people just don't know, right? When that New York Times article drops, like I had a whole bunch of white dudes who baseball for a living, like this your whole paycheck. And it's like, I had never, I never heard of this or I never considered. And I'm like, how is this possible? Right. But also what does that mean? What does it mean when the guys who baseball for a living, who are who are making the rules and, and deciding who gets to be inside of which doors, when they don't know, what does that mean? I mean, I think we see it, and this is not just in baseball. This is this is throughout society, right? These people that are that end up in the boardrooms and in the Capitol buildings and are in positions of power when they don't really know. So why this is why we're fighting back and forth now and trying to explain why reparations are necessary, why we're trying to explain all of these different things. People just really don't know. So I'm like, yeah, you know, I want adults to read it. I think it is written in a way that adults can get into it and learn a lot from it. But ultimately, I'm like, let's get these kids while they are young, right? Before they have, you know, become set in their ways, while they're still, you know, so easily moldable and able to learn and absorb things and are open-minded and open-hearted enough to understand that they don't know it all, that maybe their parents don't even know it all. This is the time to really be honest. And then hopefully, ideally, when they become the ones in the boardrooms and the Capitol buildings and all of these things, they will keep these things in mind. They will have a better understanding of our past and then will be better positioned to help us build a better future. I love it. I love it. And I just have to say, it's a beautiful design book. Um, the pictures in here look like they've been taped in. It's kind of like you're reading a scrapbook. Um, it's fun. It's just a fun, aesthetically pleasing design. So definitely, uh, if you have young readers in your life, get this book into their hands. Baseball's leading lady, Ethel Manley, in the rise and fall of Negro Leagues. Also, pick it up for yourself. Learn you something. And don't just have it be a decorative story. Really sit and grapple. It feels good in your hands. Sit with it. Sit with it for a while. Also, please check out um, your latest column as well. We have no right to destroy them. That was in the New York Times on April 14th. Where can the people find you if they want to follow you on social? Uh, and what should they be looking out for you uh, next? I am on Twitter 
at Andrea Wilwright. I technically have an Instagram as well, but I've never posted. <laughs> this is like, I think I did, I had to do like a couple of lives or something like that. So mostly on Twitter. Um, and yeah, I actually am announcing a new project next week. Ooh. Ooh. It's also for kids. It's fiction though. Ooh. My next nonfiction, um, I know what it is, the follow-up to this one. Um, it has not been announced yet. Amira, you will be excited about it. Ooh, I'm so excited already. But yeah, the I have I have a really big, really exciting fiction joint that I'm announcing next week. And I've got some adult stuff in the works too. So I'm always doing lots, lots of things. Listen. Sis, I can't thank you enough for coming on Burn It All Down and and blessing us with your time and your energy and your voice. It is a pleasure to be in conversation with you again. We will be watching very closely to wait for this announcement uh, because we definitely cannot wait to see what you're coming out with next. Um, I wish you well, especially in these trying ass times. (laughs) And thank you again. Thank you. And I I mean, anytime you want to have me back, I'm here with bells on.